I believe that there is implanted in all of us by God a desire for greatness, a desire to live a life that makes a difference, not just in church, but, but in our world and, and in school, in the business world. Now, most of us know there is an upside and a downside to this. Uh, on the downside, many people have motives in their desire, mixed motives or bad motives in their desire for greatness. And our motives can be selfish, can't they? Let me, let me give you a silly example. Uh, a lot of times when I do stuff for my wife, Pam, I will say to her, do I get any points for that? And she'd be like, why do you always want points? <laughs> And I'm like, I'm a dude. We love points. <laughs> you know, like, I played sports. So like, you know, more points, you win. She's like, no, you're not getting any points for that. I'm like, why? She goes, because you asked. And so now that's silly, but most of us have experienced or felt we have, we could in fact be wrong, the selfish ambition of people who have stepped over other people to, to get where they want to get to in life. Sometimes we're just too slow to help out. Sometimes we're just too slow to serve. We, we could be well-intentioned, or it might, in fact, be the opposite. We sort of just hope the problem will go away on its own. Did you ever feel that way? Oh, did you lie worse than the first service. Let's be honest. A, a, lot, of, a lot of times we just don't do, want to do what it takes. A couple of weeks ago, we saw this guy, the rich young ruler, and, and he walks up to Jesus. He's all excited. He says, hey, 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 Jesus. My man, how do, I, how do I get to heaven? Jesus knew that he loved money. He goes, oh, that's an easy one for you, man. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And what did he say? Thanks, but no thanks. I don't, I don't want to be great that much. Or like we see with the apostles, the guys who ran around with Jesus, they, they, they want to be great, and they kind of expect it to be easy. Or they think it should be easy just because they know Jesus. And we do that too, don't we? We think, well, gosh, if we're Christians, shouldn't life be so easy all the time? But Jesus teaches us that it's, it's not going to work that way. I remember years ago when we had that great recession, there was quite a number of people that walked away from following Jesus. And they were like, we followed Jesus, we volunteered our time, we gave money, and this is what we get? I'm out of here. Forget it. Yet ambition or the desire to be great is not always bad. In fact, when it's done God's way, it can be a glorious thing. To make your life count, to serve the kingdom of God and others is true greatness in God's eyes. I truly believe it's one of the reasons why you and I were created. In his excellent book, Instrument in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul Tripp says this, Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue until after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them in his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. Giving our lives to the goal of selfless servanthood is a great thing. And the cross of Christ provides for us a number of things 
things we sort of want to be looking at today provides for us an example, provides for us a motivation, and a power to serve God and others. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, shows us that if we can shed our own self-centeredness as much as humanly as possible and have proper motives, we can be great in God's eyes. Friend, I want to tell you today, you can be great in God's eyes. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, the apostle Paul and his friends Timothy and Silas are are going around and they're they're preaching the good news of the gospel in the Roman Empire. They come to a city by the name of Thessalonica and there's opponents there and they hire a, a mob to find them at they're staying at this guy Jason's house and Acts 17 6 says this but when they did not find them they dragged Jason some of the brethren to the rulers of the city crying out and look at what they said these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Interesting, they've turned the world upside down. And so I've entitled today's message, Greatness in the Upside-Down Kingdom. Greatness in the Upside-Down Kingdom. If you're taking notes, the first thing we want to look at today is greatness and the cross of Christ. Greatness and the cross of Christ. Let's pick it up at verse 17. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road And said to them, let's stop right there. I want to take for a second and and get inside the head of these 12 men. It says says that he took the 12. Whenever you see that, that refers to the 12 apostles, if you will, his boys, his posse, the guys he ran around with. And so he wants to say something to them. Mark, in his gospel account, the story, his story of the life of Jesus, he adds this, that as they were walking, the guys with Jesus, they were amazed and they were afraid. So there's conflicting emotions that's going on within them. Why? Well, one term that he uses here is interesting is they are going up to Jerusalem. Now, some of us go, what, what's so big about that? Well, how many of you were ever a little kid or still are a little kid and, and you were told you were going to Disney World? You were like, ah, right? That's what going up to Jerusalem was for them. Ever since they were kids, going to Jerusalem was a time of the celebrations of the feasts. It was, it was great anticipation, and, and people would be going in throngs there for the feasts, and they would be celebrating. And in effect, they, they would be singing songs. They would be having a good time. And it was really a, a feeling of victory among God's people that were going up to the, to the victorious kingdom And so they're excited about that. We also have, when we go back to chapter 19, what Jesus was telling them in verses 27 and 28. After the rich young ruler left, it says this, verse 27, Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Remember, the rich young ruler wouldn't leave all and follow him. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, that is the restoration of all things, when the Son of Man, we'll come back to that term in a second, Jesus' favorite term for himself, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we think of judging, that's a, not, not a good word in our culture. I mean, we might think of more the word ruling. He says, you'll be part of the people that will be ruling. Now, Bible scholars uh, call this the seldom taught doctrine of the vice regency of the saints. 
saints in the scripture are all those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And, and so there's an important position that every follower of Jesus has in the ages to come in terms of our vice regency or our judging. The apostles are simply wondering at this time as they're walking towards Jerusalem, is this the time? Is, is this all going down right now? Now back to uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, having pulled the 12 aside, presumably there's a large crowd of people going up there. Jesus pulls them aside and he says this to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, again, there's that term again, it's, it's from the Old Testament, that's the term, uh, it's a term of the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7. We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. We'll be talking uh, about them, calling them the religious leaders a lot. And they will condemn him to death. And then what will happen next? They will deliver him to the Gentiles. That will be to the Romans to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Now, scholars like to debate, is this one's a little bit veiled? Is this the third or the fourth prediction or prophecy of Jesus' death in Matthew? I will leave that to the Bible scholars. I'll leave that to them. But I want to notice three things that I think we see in Jesus within just this little section here. The first is the incredible detail that Jesus gives us in advance. He tells us he's they're going to go to Jerusalem. They're all excited. Hey, this is great. This is going to happen. You know, Jesus is going to be the king. This is great. And he tells us that the highest court of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, some people call them the Sanhedrin, will exercise their judicial power against Jesus. Uh, primarily, Israel is a, is, is a religious country at the time. And so these guys really are calling the shots among the Israelites, among the Jewish people, and they're going to vote against Jesus. Now, there's another thing that's going on here at the same time. A lot of you know this. Some of you don't. They are under Roman occupation. They are, uh, they are part of the Roman Empire and the laws of the Roman Empire. And one of the laws was they could not put anyone to death. So what's going to happen is the, 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 the highest court of the religious leaders is going to judge Jesus worthy of death. You being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. That's the main charge that they're going to put forth towards him. And then they're going to try to convince the Romans to carry out the death sentence. Now you say, what do the Romans care about their, about their faith? They're going to go tell the Romans he says he's a king. And we have no other king but Caesar. Biggest lie that, one of the biggest lies that anyone has ever told. What Jesus leaves out in the prediction, and you will not want to miss this in a few weeks, is the blistering confrontations he has with the religious leaders over their corruption of the temple. I'm telling you, the paint is going to peel off the walls. I mean, it is going to be like, well, this is not my sweet Jesus. No, this is the real Jesus. This is the way Jesus is. He hates it when people lead people astray from him. And then with more detail, he goes on to describe what the Romans are going to do to him, what the gent they call the Gentiles. The Gentiles is Jews and non-Jews or, or Jews and Gentiles. They're going to, number one, they're going to mock him. They're going to make fun of Jesus. Number two, they are going to scourge him. Some of your versions say they're going to flog him. We might say they're going to, bleat the they're going to uh, beat the bloody pulp out of him. And then if that's not bad enough, thirdly, they are going to crucify him on a cross. 
And so what we see here is Jesus paints a picture of a total rejection by the world. Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, everyone is going to reject Jesus. But we also see the acceptance of Jesus by his heavenly father in this saying, he will be raised from the dead, that his father will accept what he does. Luke, in his account, again, tells us kind of, Luke tells us what's going on in his account. He says, uh, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know, some versions say they did not grasp the things that were spoken. So Luke tells us that Jesus tells them again what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and they're kind of like, what's he talking about? And they say, well, why doesn't Matthew tell us that? Well, one thing, Matthew was there. But another thing is the next section is going to tell us that they didn't understand a word that Jesus was saying. But that gives me a, a second detail I want to talk to you about, about what's going on here with Jesus. Whether it's the third or fourth time, or there was other times that are unrecorded that he told them about his impending death, notice that G- Jesus keeps repeating himself. He keeps telling them over and over again the importance of his death and his resurrection. And eventually the apostles and all of us have to have some grasp on the cross and resurrection. And that's why Jesus keeps repeating it to them and to us in the scriptures over and over and over again. Why? Because the power of the cross and resurrection will change them. The power of the cross and the resurrection will change you, and it will change me. And it goes something like this. As we begin to grasp what happened to the cross and the resurrection, we'll be talking about more about that in a minute, the cr- that what happened begins to grasp us. And as it grasps us, the more we grasp and we continue to change. The third thing I want to note here is Jesus' love and grace. Um, Each prophecy has more and more details in it. Uh, Jesus knows that there's a lot for them to hear, and he knows that it's too much for them to bear to hear it all at once. So he's slowly giving them details and details and details. Notice he pulls them aside. You ever have anybody tell you something urgent as you're running out the door? Don't you hate that? It's like, you know, like I got to tell you something urgent. And they just dump everything on you. And it's like a truckload of details on you. And you're like, I'm not going to remember any of this. Jesus doesn't do that to them. All the husbands and wives are like, yeah, you do that. You do that. Right? Okay. So, but, but, but really what's happening here is he knows it's a lot for them to bear. He's not giving to them all at once. And notice also his patience. As we saw and as we'll see, they didn't understand. Yet Jesus doesn't give up on them. And friend, let me tell you something. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not getting it. It's not all sinking in. Jesus is not giving up on you. He's going to come again and again and again and again. Some of you are like, I wish he would stop coming. Well, you better give in. Because <laughs> the more he comes, the more he's going to turn up the heat on you until you, di- you, you give in. And so he won't give up on you, my friend. Jesus models for us here true greatness. He's willing to be misunderstood by the religious leaders and by the Romans. And he's willing to endure the suffering of the cross in service to the kingdom and to people. What's interesting here is they're all going up there. They're all going up to Jerusalem together. But Jesus will die on the cross alone. 
it's similar to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac and his son Isaac and God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him. He doesn't do it, but he, he's seeing where Abraham is at with his faith. And, and so they come to the bottom of the mountain and Abraham says to his servants, Abraham was very rich, and he says, you guys wait here. Just my son and I are going up to the top of the mountain. It's a picture of the cross. You see, the cross is kingdom business between the father and the son. We, are, we get the benefits of it if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, but it is father and son business. Well, that's number one, greatness and the cross of Christ. Now we move to something that might be considered the exact opposite. Greatness and the helicopter mom. Greatness and the helicopter mom. So, so, so what is a helicopter parent? Some of you are like, yeah, I know, I live with one. You're elbowing your mom and your dad right now. Uh, here's one of the definitions from the Internet. A helicopter parent is a parent who takes an overprotective or excessive interest in the life of her child or children. So what are they doing? They're like a helicopter, hovering over the top of their children all the time. Dr. George Sachs says this, some college officials see all of this as the behavior of an, under, of an overindulged generation raised by helicopter parents and lacking in resilience. Some of you are like, oh, this helicopter parent stuff has got to end. It is ending. Isn't that good news? Yes, it's being replaced by drone parenting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know if that's going to be much better. <laughs> so verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Now let's stop right there for a second. So one of the apostles comes with their mother, and then she kneels down, and she asks something of Jesus. Most Bible scholars think this is Salome. Now, who is Salome? She is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would make her Jesus's aunt or aunt, as some of you say. That would make the sons of Zebedee, James and John, Jesus's cousins. Verse 21, and he said to her, Jesus said to her, what do you wish? Now, let me just stop there for a second. How do you answer that question? Jesus walks right up to you, and he just looks you right in the eye and says, what do you want? What do you wish? Okay, so think of what that is, and now think about what's the motivation behind what you want. No, 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 no let's peel it back. What's the real motivation behind what you want? He says, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. You see, all the kingdom talk that Jesus has been doing has them thinking, all right, now it's kingdom time. And remember when Jesus first appeared, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. But here's an important thing to understand when you're reading the Bible. The kingdom comes in stages. And, 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 the, and, and the way things, the events will play out are in stages. And they, they're, they're off on that. We'll see more about that in a second. Now, many people say if you want something from someone, you need to go through their mother. Have you heard that before? Jesus is about to lay that one to rest. Now, if you're new to the area, I just do want to caution you on one thing. Don't count this against my time. We have lovely bears up here in northwest New Jersey. And as we come to the springtime, you might see a mama bear and her babies. Be very careful of mama bear, okay? <laughs> because if you go near the babies, mama bear gets mean. Now, if you're nice with them, they're like, oh, people, look. All right, they just keep going their way. 
But be very, very careful. So here Mama Bear comes, and, and she wants to have a conversation with Jesus. She respects Jesus. She, she kneels down. It's probably not worship. More so she sees that, that the people are seeing that Jesus is going to be the Messiah or Jesus is the Messiah or the King. And apparently she and others, we'll see that her boys are involved in this in a second, thinks it's coronation time for Jesus. But the coronation will take place on a cross. So it's really not coronation time from a worldly perspective. It's crucifixion time. And apparently her boys, oh, by the way, they're grown men, forgot to tell their mom about what Jesus said in the first section. Like, oh, yeah, we left that out. Luke, again, chapter 19, 11, he explains what's going on. He says, now, now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom would appear immediately. What were they missing? That the kingdom comes in stages. So helicopter mom shows up and says, uh, Jesus, you know, uh, come talk to your aunt. Now, they were probably much younger than a lot of us. They got married a lot younger then and uh, we don't know how much younger she was than her sister Mary. Maybe she was pulling the, well, I changed your diaper, so you have, to, you have to come talk to me. I know some of you think Jesus was born potty trained, but he wasn't. Okay, so, so she says, you know, hey, come over here. I'm your aunt. You know, I, I, got, you know, I deserve a little bit of family stuff here. I got the request I want to make of you. And, and she says, uh, you, know, you know, the two best seats in your kingdom, the, the right and the left, I want them for my boys. Why do you think I'm on my knees? I had plenty of ants. Not one of them ever kneeled in front of me to ask me something. She's like, I want that for my boys. Is she expecting the kingdom? Yes. And that's good. But the ambition to share in Jesus' honor and power and authority, is that good? No, that's not so good. Now, those of us who are parents, it's okay to want stuff for our kids. But as Jesus will show us here, you can't push your way into high places in the kingdom of God. Did we hear that, parents? I know you can push your kid into the class you want them in. Dance class, swimming lessons, all that kind of stuff. You can do that, but there's some places you're not going to be able to do that. Jesus is not the kind of guy who's going to let you push him around. As followers of Jesus, those of us who have kids, what we do is we, we pour the things of God into our kids. That is, that is our parental responsibility, and you should be doing that at home. We do, it, we do it in our children's ministry here. We, we pour the things of God into their souls. We do that with our youth ministry. We, we pour the things of God into their souls. But eventually, our kids, your kids, have to transact with the Lord on their own. You can't do it for them. Verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you, now to us that looks like he's talking to her, but the you there is plural. So I wonder if Jesus is looking, you know, past Salome to the boys. Looking at James and John. You do not know what you ask. What are they asking? Well, it appears to me that they're asking to sit on the throne without a cost. That's just not going to happen. That's just not the way it works in the kingdom of God. You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? Well, Jesus is not going to, you know, to be baptized as we think of baptism. 
What he's talking about is, first he talks about the cup. The cup is associated with, with the suffering. It, the cup in the Old Testament is the wrath of God. So think of a, a full cup, and a full cup of God's wrath against sin. And what is he going to do? He's going to take it, and he's going to empty it out on Jesus on the cross. And the baptism speaks of his death. So he says, are you going to be able to go through the suffering death that, like I am? Suffering and death like I am? Look at their answer. They said to him, we are able. Now, in the weeks to come, I want you to remember those words because they're going to eat those words. So he said to them, you, are, you will indeed drink my cup. Now, let's just stop right there for a second. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're really glad that you're here. And you are going to suffer in this life. I'm just telling you that you are. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, right, I'm glad you're here too. And you are going to suffer in this life. You're going to suffer. You say, that's not what the guys on TV say, Pastor Jim. They're lying to you. (laughs) Well, like, that's not what I heard, Pastor Jim. You heard wrong. All followers of Jesus, just like everybody else, we are all going to suffer. So he said, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. James will become the first martyr that we read about in the Bible of the church. John will eventually be exiled unto the island of Patmos. But there's two things I want us to note in what Jesus says here. He says that to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give. For 19 and a half chapters, Jesus and Matthew has been telling us that Jesus is God. And here he says, I can't do something. Now, some of you, if you're skeptics, I'm glad that you're here. I was a raging skeptic for many years. This is one of the ways you know the Bible is true. Just imagine for a second, you're trying to build a religion, trying to start a new religion, and you want everybody to believe that this guy who's the founder is God. Would you ever put that there's anything, there's something he can't do in your writings? You would never put that in. But he says, it's not my, what I do, it's what, it's what the Father does. I, 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 it's been prepared for by my Father. Tells us something else very interesting about Jesus how much he loves his father. Because what did he just tell us he's going to do? He's going to go to the cross. He just told us that God's plan is that he goes to the cross and he says, hey, my father's going to decide who sits on the right and the left. That's not how we would react, is it? We're like, so my, my father, you know, I got to do all the work. I got to die. And he picks? I mean, what's up with that? But notice how quickly Jesus puts it to rest. This is God's will. Case closed. Let's move on. That's why he is the obedient, beloved son. After all Jesus has taught them and us about humility and servanthood, they show that they still really don't understand Jesus' teaching on this. As we'll see in the weeks to come, they are way too overconfident. What do they say? We are able. We are able. That's going to become, and they ran away. (laughs) The reality is that many people seek leadership in the kingdom and in the church 
without knowing that it is a path to suffering. Now, some of you are saying, well, Pastor Jim, why do you say that stuff? Nobody will want to be a leader. Well, if you're not ready for that path, then don't take it. The old Bible commentator Matthew Henry, who lived in the late 1600s and early 1700s, said this, We know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and ask not for grace to bear the cross in our way to it. In time, the apostles will come to understand and be used mightily by God. But like us, they have to learn, they have to see that the training period is very difficult, that the training can be very, very hard. Now, let's go back to the certified uh, helicopter moms and dads. Uh, If you are one, you don't need to raise your hand. I just need to look out in the audience and I can tell who you are (laughs) because your children are laughing. (laughs) And you're looking guilty. We don't want our kids to suffer, do we? But we can't stop it. We just can't. We know that We know that God uses pain and suffering to to bring people to Christ. Why do we know that? Because that's what he did for most of us. Why in the world would we expect it to be different for our kids? I mean, at the end of the day, what do you want more for your kids? Do you want them to to have a problem-free life, or do you want them to be in heaven with you? And sometimes God will do what God needs to do or allow what God needs to allow to get our, all of our attention to get us to look up. Once again, Jesus shows us his kingdom greatness. Jesus has so much power, yet he is willing to obey the plans of his heavenly father. When the son of God came to earth, he, he perfectly lived under the authority of God and in, 24, and in a 24-7 trust relationship with his heavenly Father. That's why on the cross, Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's why we say sometimes around here that, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in your place. Maybe today someone here needs to get off the perfection treadmill. You don't have to be perfect anymore. Somebody else already did it for you. Jesus lived the life we couldn't. And that life is credited to us when we put our trust in him. Parents, you cannot do that for your kids. You cannot live their life. I know sometimes you might want to, but you can't. And you can't trust Jesus for them. They must themselves and again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. It's important you know we've, we've come from other places in Matthew's gospel. We've been studying this for a couple of years now, that Jesus has already taught us that, that you cannot save yourself from the penalty of your sins. You have to repent and believe. It's not about being a good person. It's about repenting and believing, turning to God, repent, turning to God, and believing, putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Well, from the greatness and the cross of Christ to greatness and the helicopter mom, we come to number three, greatness and the servant of God. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, that would be the other apostles, two are there with their mother, the other ten heard it. They were greatly displeased uh, with the two brothers. Why? 
Well, maybe they wanted the best seats. Maybe they were upset, you know, that they didn't ask first. They're like, oh, those guys in Salome, man, she's so quick, man. You turn her back, and pff, there she is, asking Jesus favors. I can't speak much for, 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 for ladies. I mean, I'm married to one and have one as a daughter, but, but, but I know the way guy talk goes. Guy talk would be like this. Oh, you brought your mommy to talk to Jesus. <laughs> like, when you brought your mommy. Oh, you little boy needs his mommy. I can't imagine Jesus looking at these guys. You know, this is an oive moment probably for Jesus. Just looking at them, and I, I wonder what's going on in his heart. Yet he doesn't yell at them. He takes it and he spins it or he uses it as a total teachable moment. Look what he says, verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, because, come on, guys, let's talk about this. You know, stop right there for a second. What is he saying? You know this. You've seen this. You've observed this. Now, I want you to connect with what you know and what you've seen to how things work in the upside-down kingdom. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Verse 26. If you have your own Bible, you might want to circle these words. Yet it shall not be so among you. Jesus says, you know the way it works in the world. You've seen it. You want to be part of my kingdom? You want to be part of the upside-down kingdom, which is really the right-side-up kingdom? You want to be part of it? It shall not be so among you. Shouldn't be that way in a church? Shouldn't that be, be that way among God's people? It shall not be that not so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now, that's a very touchy word here in the United States. And to the best that I can, I, I understand why it is. But we should not think of slavery in terms of the absolute horrific things that happened in our country years and years ago. And, but slavery still is a real thing in, in, in our world today. I think it's better to think when, when Jesus talks about slavery, think of being owned by God because of the cross. The Apostle Paul tells us that, that your life is not your own if you're a Christian. You were bought with a price. You're therefore to honor God with your body. God purchased you. Jesus Christ purchased you, as we'll be talking about in a moment, on the cross. And so that's what we think of when we think of, of being a servant and being a slave. You see, the reality is, and, and talk to anybody that has a halfway decent marriage, is that, is that true love comes with limitations. You just can't do what you want. It comes with limitations. And, and true love comes with a sacrifice of your freedom. Jesus says that's, that's part of greatness in the upside-down kingdom. And it seems that they just, they just have the whole wrong idea of the kingdom of heaven. They think it's like the, like the religious leaders. They think it's like the Roman Empire. They think it's like the, the, the kingdom of earth. Yeah, 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 make us the boss, Jesus, and we'll tell people what to do. 
and how kindly Jesus is when he tells all 12 of them that they are completely wrong and they are not acting like people of the upside-down kingdom. They seem to think that leadership is a competition. They seem to think that the only way to get to the top is to climb your way to the top. And sadly, they have missed what Jesus is teaching them. Now, some of you might be sitting here today and you might be saying, you know what, I've already made those mistakes for so many years in my life. Well, don't sit in your seat condemned. Sit in your seat corrected. Be willing to change. Better yet, be willing to let Jesus change you. You say, how do, how do I begin to change? What's my part? I think the first thing is, is maybe to start to think a little bit better of people. Don't always think the worst. Because remember, you don't know what you don't know. Read the word of God and, and, and ask, ask God for help here. And, and see that kingdom greatness is measured by service and humility. Now, humility is one of those words we define differently every time we come to it. So I want to use a different definition today. I'll call humility today bold trust in God. I'm going to boldly trust in God by following his principles. He's going to land me in the place where he wants me to be. And I don't have to be like those who lord it over other people. Notice the way Jesus puts it. He says, if you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be great, help people. And so often uh, it's so sad in in, in our political system right now, there's tragedies that are going on and, and the, the politicians are just using these things as arguments for what's going on. And in the background are the real heroes, are the people who are actually rolling up their sleeves, actually doing something to make the world a better place while the, while the loudmouths just go back and forth with their stuff. Jesus says, if you want to be great, be a servant, be a be a helper. And then he says, if you want to be first, if you want to be first among the servants in the upside down kingdom. Be a slave. Live your life for others. Now, we have to do a little house cleaning here at the moment, so this might be a little uncomfortable for some of us. A lot of people like to say that they're servants. Oh, I'm a servant. And then a few, few weeks later, you're like, hey, I thought you were a servant. Oh, the way I was treated. So we like saying we're servants until what? Until we're treated like one. Then we don't really like it. Then it's not so fabulous. Also, sometimes you say to people who are Christians, you say, well, how are you serving the Lord? They're like, oh, I'm serving the Lord. And you say, well, tell me how. And there's no concrete service to point to. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people feel so unfulfilled in their Christian life, because they're just taking in and taking in and taking in. And there's no sacrifice of their freedom. There's no costly service to others where they're sensing God's fulfillment. A lot of other people, what they do is they hide behind what's their gift and what's not their gift. They go, oh, there seems to be a need that there. Can you, can you jump in there? That's not my gift. That's not my gift. You know, I, I tell people when they come to, to serve on the, on the staff of the church here, uh, and they say, what's the job description? I go, it goes like this. 
one-third of your job is going to be your key area, the area of, that you cover. That's going to be one-third of it. Another third of your job is going to be really services, getting ready for the service, uh, getting here early, leaving late, talking with people, having the services. So that's going to be another third of your job. And the last third of your job is going to be blah. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be whatever it takes to get the job done. And that's what it means to be a servant. You know, sitting around putting conditions on everything. You're not saying, well, that's not my gift. We, we here at the church, we don't have time to think about whether it's our gift or not. We just do it. Now, my role is a little bit different. I was here first. So, so the only rank I really get to pull is that, that for my job, the first third of my area of expertise or my area of main focus, which is teaching, takes up about 40% of my time. So I get, I get out of 7% somewhere else. I'm not so sure where it comes out of sometimes, but, but that's really, in theory, in theory, my job description. Other times, people want serving to be easy. They want it to be easy. They want it to be comfortable. They want it to be convenient. You think the cross was comfortable or convenient or easy for him? Really, seriously. Whenever I get up on my high, mighty horse, that was God is always faithful to remind me that it wasn't comfortable, that it wasn't easy. But as we'll see in a minute, he did it for me. He did it for you. Here Jesus tells us it's okay to want to be great and make a difference for the kingdom of God. But how you do it is important. And this is what I absolutely love about what Jesus is saying here. This is doable. This is doable. This is really a mindset. This is doable. This is not like Jesus saying, hey, you want the best seat? You've got to be the richest man or the richest woman in the world. He doesn't say that at all. He says what? You have to be a servant. You have to have the right motives of loving and caring for the kingdom and for others. And while it's countercultural to say that fulfillment is found in service to others, I am blessed to say that I get to see some example of that or hear some example of that almost every day in this church by many of you. What makes me sad is how little value most Christians put on service. Sadly, in America, because we're so Hollywood-influenced, we are, we, are, we are impressed and we applaud celebrity pastors. And I don't know how much of the Christian news you happen to read, but they are dropping like flies. When, the, when, the, when all of the focus is put on the guy on the stage instead of the guy on the cross, eventually, it's going to crumble. And it's happening in so many different places. Big, big scandal, all kinds of stuff like that going on. So if you want to be great in the kingdom, verse 28, Jesus connects the dot. He says, just as the Son of Man, there's that name again, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Interesting, that little word there for, ransom for many, that little word there for means instead of, or in the place of, 
In other words, Jesus is saying that the Son of Man will be a ransom for many. He will be a substitute for many. Jesus looks at them and he says, you will be able to start to live out kingdom greatness when you see that the king came to serve. And the longer I do this, the more I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that you'll never really be a servant until you see how Jesus came and served you. Until you see that the King of Glory came and was a servant on that cross and that grabs a hold of you, any effort to be a servant will have you walking around offended and wanting applause and wanting everybody to think well of you instead of serving out of tremendous gratitude. In addition, and perhaps more importantly here, Jesus teaches us his own self-understanding of who he is and his mission here on earth. Now, he uses the word ransom. I'm going to be, he says, I'm going to, the son of man talking about himself is going, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When we think of the word ransom, we typically think of, we associate that with kidnapping. You know, some rich billionaire, multimillionaire gets something, they kidnap their kid and like, you know, you know, leave $5 million in a paper bag and don't bring the cops. Like, Okay, sure. <laughs> and, and, so, and so that's what we think of. But in the ancient world, it was the price paid to free a prisoner of, oftentimes a prisoner of war. So someone was in danger, and, and they're being paid a price to be freed. It was also the, uh, a price paid for a slave. In other words, what Jesus is getting at here, it's a price that someone cannot pay themselves. And so Jesus paid it for them instead of them. So, next question, who are the many? Who are the many? Well, we say Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins. Jesus says, I'm doing that for the many. Who are the many? Well, there's different opinions on that. I'll, I'll sort of punt on this one and take the middle road. Potentially, the many is everyone. Absolutely, positively, everyone. Remember we saw that last week? The guys who came at the very end of the day, Jesus says, come on in, man, and pay you just like you were here working here all day. But it won't be you if you don't put your trust in Jesus. Specifically, who is it? Well, in, in Isaiah 53, the, the passage that tells us 700 years in advance how Jesus is going to die on the cross, God says, they're my people. In Matthew chapter 1, we're told that Jesus will die for the sins of his people. And specifically, although it is potentially everyone, the, the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection is specifically for those who receive the offer of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life made possible by the cross and the resurrection and the response of our putting our trust in Jesus. Now just imagine for a second, there's King Jesus in heaven, sitting on the throne, all the angels are around singing songs of praises. People serving him can have whatever he wants. And then he decides to come down here to earth. Very interesting. He, 
could have demanded to be served, but he didn't, did he? No, he didn't at all. He gave his life. He gave his life. Not money. Not money. He gave his life. Why? So you could be ransomed. So you could be rescued. So you could be healed. So you could be restored. So you could be forgiven. You see, either Jesus drinks the cup when we meet God or we have to drink the cup ourselves. Either Jesus pays for our sins or we have to pay for it ourselves. If you want to go to heaven, you have to understand that Jesus did all of that for you and put your trust in him. And so not only is Jesus our example, his sacrificial love serves as our motivation and power to serve the kingdom out of gratitude. So why the cross? The cross is necessary because God is so holy and just that he cannot put up with sin. Yet at the same time, God is so loving, he is willing to send his only son to die in our place. People have called it cosmic child abuse. This verse here just destroys it. Jesus said that he came to give his life, which means that Jesus is saying, I came to make myself a willing and willing and voluntary self-sacrifice for you. And since the trust in Jesus will give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that makes Jesus' sacrifice unique. Again, picture yourself there on that morning when he was crucified. On the cross, Jesus turns the world upside down. Or really right side up. Just imagine how he changes our thinking. You look at him being crucified on the cross and he seems to be weak. Yet it is the greatest display of power, greatness and love that the world has ever seen. And following Jesus by unselfishly loving God and others, as the scripture says, in serving one another in love, is greatness in the upside-down kingdom. You see, our king, our savior, was a servant. And that's why he wants us to be like him. He wants us to be servants. Just imagine with me for a second. Can you imagine your life being like that? Can you imagine a church being like that? Where a group of people committed to the gospel and committed to the costly love of service are giving of their lives because Jesus gave of his life. Can you imagine that? Let me tell you something. I can. I can. Well, let's pray.